This is Detention, a podcast dedicated to candid conversations about education. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Lopez, a global leader, author, speaker, coach, consultant, and entrepreneur who opened a school to close a prison. Join me as I share my insights and bring fellow disruptors to serve time in conversation. Rebels, let's get into some good trouble. Thank you for joining me for a new episode of Detention. Before you jump in, I want to say in advance, I apologize for the quality of this particular taping. It was actually my very first interview for the podcast, and I was getting used to the headset and the recording session, and ultimately, I had no idea that there was some ruffling happening. So I don't want to have that take away from your experience of listening to what is a really great conversation between myself and Marlon Peterson, the author of Bird and Cage, who shares his journey through New York City public schools, what led him to incarceration, and the work that he's doing now. I want you to be open, and I want you to give this episode some grace. Enjoy, and let's jump in. Hello, beautiful people. I want to welcome you to another episode. Today, I have a really special guest, Marlon Peterson. You know, if I didn't have to read his bio, I would automatically first start off by saying he is a fellow Brooklynite. Um, He is of Trinidadian descent, lover of soca, steel plant, steel pad, And of course, he loves to eat his plantains and travel the world. That's what brings him joy. But I want to do my due diligence of really taking time to read Marlon's bio and his accomplishments um, because it's going to add context to this conversation. So Marlon is the author of The Bird Uncaged and Abolitionist Freedom Song, host of the Decarcerated Podcast, an owner of the presidential group Social Enterprises and its nonprofit arm, Be Presidential Incorporated. His TED Talk, Am I Human? A Call for Criminal Justice Reform, has amassed over 1.2 million views. And in 2015, he was honored as one of the top 100 leaders in the Black community by Ebony Magazine. And I had the privilege of being there with Marlon in LA. Um, to celebrate in this moment. Marlon spent 10 years, two months and seven days incarcerated in various New York state prisons, during which time he co-authored or co-created a holler, which means how our lives link all together, a youth development organization that has provided programming, college trips and mentorships for New York City public school students and justice involved youth. As the Associate Director of the Project of the Center for Court Innovation, Marlon has created the Youth Organizing to Save Our Streets and served as a violent interrupter in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, where we both live. He's worked at Fortune Society as the Director of Community Relations and has served on various boards from the Family for Freedom, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, Criminal Justice Action Fund, and has also been part of the advisory boards for the Center for Court Innovation and the Village Capital Justice Tech. 
His activism has led him to become a Soros Fellow, Senior Atlantic Fellow, and an Aspen Civil Society Fellow. We, he focused on his advocacy for safer communities, reducing the footprint of law enforcement, and to amplify the work of individuals and grassroots organizations across the globe. His writings have been featured in several publications that have included How to Kill Yourself and Others by Kiese Limon, How We Fight White Supremacy by Kenra uh, Rankin and Akiba Solomon, and most recently, Colin Kaepernick's Abolitionists for the People, The Movement for a Future Without Policing and Prison. <sighs> it's... It's important to share all of those things simply because in our society, when someone is charged and um, sentenced and must serve time, we criminalize them. And we often make them feel as though they become invaluable to this world in terms of, um, well, saying they are devalued in this world and not seeing what their full potential can be. In reading Marlon's bio, if you do not know him, you see him as a very accomplished person. But the reality is that the journey has not been easy and that a lot of our work together beyond our friendship really started while he was incarcerated and wanting on my end to impact the youth and having them see you don't have to end up in prison to have impact in your community. So Marlon, I wanna start out with the work that we have done um, and how that not only changed the trajectory for your life, but also did have this tremendous impact on the lives of so many young people um, in Fort Greene and then eventually Brownsville and then beyond. So I wanna go back to I think it was 2004 um, when I reached out to you and you were at that time serving time in prison. Um, and I was just, I was, I had just become a teacher. I was trying to really figure out how to best support the young people in my classroom because they were, especially the young men, they glorified prison. They thought it was part of the rites of passage. And I felt like no matter what I was saying, it wasn't gonna make a difference. So I remember reaching out to Devon, your nephew and saying, listen, I need to contact Marlon. I, I need him to help me. I don't know if he's gonna be able to do it, but I need him to talk to these kids. And um, at that time he asked your, your father, Mr. Michael, and then I got your information and I sent you that letter. I just want, to I want you to share, what was it like receiving the letter and hearing my ask and what you felt as a black man who had been incarcerated and not seen as someone who at that time would be considered valuable to the lives of young people who were outside. Um, Nadia, thanks for that setup. Thanks for the intro. Oh, you got you forget that you know you said that uh, in 2015 with Ebony Magazine that you were out there 
you are also out there because you were being honored by Ebony Magnus. So it's oh, not yeah. like you're out there supporting me. You're out there highly much stepping into your own glory. So just, just making that clear. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, going back to that time, uh, uh, you could say almost 20 years now. It's crazy mm-hmm. to say this. So, um, I was at that time, I was being transferred from a maximum A to a maximum B. And maximum A, just for folks, is like the highest level of classification of a prison you could be in in New York State. And then maximum B is like one level security down, still a max. Mm-hmm. And what max means is that you're just in cells. You, you know, you spend most of your day in cells. Um, so I was just transferred from one prison to the other, um, 23, 24, somewhere around there, years old, four or five years into the bid. And... Um, you know, I was now starting to, I'm just like painting a picture of just like how I, where I was at. Yeah. And I had only been upstate in prison at that time, maybe two, two and a half years because I was originally arrested in 1999. Right. And, uh, three, right. Cause I was in all the city jails before I got sentenced and sent upstate. So I was still, you know, I was now, you know, adjusting to really being upstate and then two years upstate and I was sentenced to this next prison. So it was kind of just like, you know, shocking of the senses like you know being transferred to prison what does this mean like who am I here who you know safety is always an issue and then so and still dealing with the fact that I had more time ahead of me to do than I had done already right so at the beginning of my time so when I you know receiving your letter first you know hearing from my nephew Dev that you wanted to do something with me regarding your students first I was taken aback I didn't believe it I was sort of like, yeah, whatever. People say stuff like that all the time. Oh, not they don't say stuff like that all the time, but people reach out. <laughs> people reach out to you and say they want to continue to reach out to you, and then that doesn't happen. So I was somewhat like, you know, I was, I was definitely like, I didn't believe it, right? And and then when you follow up with the letter, I remember, you know, at the time I was sharing a cell with somebody. Um, and he, this person I shared a cell with, always got mail. Like he, you know, he's he got mail every day, right? And it was, mm-hmm. it was you know, I, you know, I had people outside my family supporting me, but they weren't writers. They weren't writing me letters, so I didn't get letters, mail every day, every week, everything like that. So you know, when I got the letter from you, and um, and then you know, you 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 proposed the opportunity. I mean, I had to read it a couple of times. It's like, is she really asking this sort of thing? from me to communicate with her kids. And it's like, why would she ask me? I'm in prison. Like, why would you ask me to do something like this? Like, I'm in jail. <laughs> Am I the type of person you would want to be um, corresponding with your, uh, with your students? Um, and yeah, without a question, like when, you know, I got the letter and before I decided to respond to it and accept and be a part of it, um, there was this feeling of, oh, wow, I'm, you know, somebody, you know, people see that I can be contributing, I can contribute to something, right? You know, prison, that's this thing where it makes you feel, I mean, you know, what you're in prison for, there's a guilt with that, associated mm-hmm. with that, you go through that court process, and it just ingrains that you're not you're a terrible person, or, you know, you committed this terrible act, or, or a part of this terrible act. Um, and then, yeah, you know, you're there in the, the, the building structures, the officers, the environment uh, affirms all the negative parts of you. It amplifies all the parts of you that you probably don't like. Um, and, and in some ways injects 
negative impressions of yourself that you didn't really think of before when it comes to yourself. So I'm saying all that to build up to the point where while you want me to impact kids in a positive way and not like some scared straight sort of thing, um, it overwhelmed me, but it also, I always say like that, that shifted uh, what I saw was possible for people from inside. For me, for me, definitely. Mm -hmm. as an individual, but also just general, like how, oh, wow, people can ask us to do stuff like this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I always, you know, I'm always in gratitude to you for that. Um, it set off a trajectory of a lot of things that happened after that. Yeah. And so for folks who don't know our true story, it was, we actually created a letter correspondence program. Um, you sent the letter and um, you also included a poem that I read to the scholars. And by sharing that with them, the assignment was they had to respond back to what they heard me read and to ask you any questions as it related to your incarceration and, you know, and that you would provide them with advice. And what ended up happening is that these young people were telling you things that even I as their teacher didn't know. Um, and I considered myself really close to my young scholars, but there was just something about communicating with someone who was incarcerated, who could speak to living in Brooklyn, but then having suffered this consequence and not talking at them, not trying to make them become goody two shoes as they always thought, but really saying from a place of love and understanding, like, these are the choices I made. And if they ask you questions, you would, you would follow up with another question. You would give them insight, but follow up with another question. And so this happened, we would get a letter, we would get letters from you one week, and then I would send the package to you the following week. And it was, it went on for up until the time that I was able to do it until I transitioned to an all-girls school. And clearly that wasn't going to be possible. Um, but in between that time, it, it set up the opportunity for me to kind of mentor you through this process of saying, you know, you can turn this into something because I had just gotten into the New York Teaching Fellows when I started off as an educator. And a lot of it was like reading backward desires to figure out how to do a lesson. And I figured what you were doing would allow you to actually create a curriculum. And so I sent you that big book by Mattia Wiggins. And then this then turns into Hala. So I want you to share with folks what essentially Hollow was, how it came about, and then how it connects to when you actually end up leaving the prison system to, you know, the trajectory of working with young people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when, when, so here's the thing, when I would do the letter correspondence and create the, you know, lesson plans or whatever, um, not saying whatever, when I would do those things and I would get the letters back from the young people I would talk to the other guys and you know in the, in the prison I was cool with, like we kind of just talking about what was happening and what I was learning from the young folks, but also asking for like, what would you do? Like I was, you know, I felt like, you know, I'm getting all these letters anywhere from mm -hmm. 15, 16, 17 letters, like 50 letters at a time. And you know, I don't consider myself an oracle, you know, but I also, <laughs> but I also knew, I don't know, intuitively, I always felt like the people around me also had, I mean, they have insight, you know. I mean, I was also usually in the prisons I was at, youngest person. So there was a lot of older guys around me too. Um, and so I would share stuff with them with this. So, and eventually as, as, you know, because as you said, you know, I can do something with this curriculum skill, curriculum design skill. 
I ended up for the first time in my during my years inside saying I'm gonna come out my shell of just like just doing me, just you know, not really engaging in other activities in the outside of basketball um, and religion. And I was like, well, you know, they had a program in the jail where you can like prepare men for their release. And so I became a facilitator in these groups, like a workshop facilitator, do classes, I ended up doing counseling and all that. But the reason I'm getting to this is because I would share excerpts of the letters with the men. And, and the reason why I would do that in my classes with the men, because these men were, a lot of these men in these classes were old enough to be my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Or were old and, you know, they were in, or in jail 20, 30 years already, right? And I felt like it was a connection I was also doing for them. The classes weren't around young people, but, I knew that these men were preparing for their release and I wanted them to connect to what's happening there with young folks, right? If they're not already connected to their own kids or family members and friends like that. So when your program ended, when the program ended because you moved on to the other school, to the all girls school, um, you know, it was like, oh man, sad, like it's over, I don't get to do this anymore. Um, But through the seeds that you planted and eventually I planted through these classes and talking to other men in the prison, um, a brother came up to me in the yard. Orange man, his name is Bill. Um, and interesting about Bill, Bill and I had played basketball against each other. And, you know, in the aggression of playing basketball, we had some words. Nothing like we didn't fight or nothing. We wouldn't want to hurt, but, you know, mm-hmm. talk trash. And the trash is a little bit more than just ha ha ha, right? <laughs> yeah. So we didn't like have the best sort of, you know, introduction to each other, right? And we didn't interact in the prison at all outside of playing. But one day I was in the yard working out and he just came up to me walked up to me he was working out too and he walked up to me he's like yo uh, Marlon I heard you do this just doing this thing with kids this program you know my bunkie we call it bunkie the person he shared a cell with was like yo he had told me about it and you know from that on he's like yo I wonder if like is anything like that we I'm interested in doing something like that too um from then on Bill and I we would meet Right. And we try to figure it out. And then we brought some other people on that. Uh, we were, you know, we trusted and we knew inside the facility and we, we didn't have a name. We just knew that, well, we had this thing that Marlon had did before. Like, how can we do something like that, too, even though he doesn't, you know, that program that he had ended. Um, we would meet every week in a part of the prison where we, you know, during our rec time, we would use that rec time to go meet. And eventually it became how our lives link all together. We came up with a whole idea of what this program would be, obviously built largely off of the ideas that we had already, you and I had already created, but definitely with their own twist on it too. Um, and, and that it, because, so the difference between HALA and like the Young Scholars program that we had called what you and I were working on was that there was a trusting relationship between me and the educator mm-hmm. that made it work, right? Um, uh, obviously where I was at, people don't trust people inside the prisons. Um, and so when we created a program, we, I mean, we created a whole curriculum too, built off of that bylaws, like we were focused, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, we started pitching it to other schools or all the people who knew people in different places. Nobody, it never really took, took, took never took off really from inside. Um, and then when I came home, several years later, um, you know, knew you and you were at that time assistant director, uh, assistant principal, pardon me. Yeah. At and I was home. I had this stuff that we had created inside. And I was like, hey, why not? You was like, what's up? You, got, you know, you always tell the story, right? Like, <laughs> why are you not in my school yet? And mm-hmm. I didn't know, like, I didn't know. I just did a decade in prison. I didn't know how that, like, 
would you, would people allow me in a school? You know, we have these perceptions of ourselves. People often talk about how people think about people in prison, but we also have these perceptions of ourselves when we're there and that like people ain't gonna want us around and they definitely ain't gonna want us around children, right? Even though we have no, the incident that we got to went to prison for had nothing to do with children or anything like that. We just automatically think like nobody's not gonna want us around them um, or when we legal all the things and you say, well, come on in, you arrange the organization to meet with your principal. And it went down and, I, and from that time, you know, holla, you know, we work, I worked with the kids and, and, you know, boys, right, in the room every week. Um, and it was a very rewarding for me, I think largely because it literally started a month after I came home. So it was, a, it was a couple of weeks. It wasn't even a month. It was literally a couple of weeks because it was at the top of the year. You came home right around, right Christmas. before Christmas. And so at the top of the year, I, I was immediately on the phone like, and so what's happening? <laughs> Why are you not at the school? I told you when you were inside, when you came out, you have to come to the school. Like that's, that's you paying your, your debt to me <laughs> for, all the, for all the stuff that I sent you in terms of preparing this curriculum. And, and again, now I was in Brownsville, the Ocean Hill Brownsville section. And what I saw in that community was there were young people from kindergarten to eighth grade in this building and no one had poured into them. And we didn't have a lot of black men on our staff. Yeah, we didn't have that many. And so we had gangs running the building. We had, um, young people who had never been spoken to about college. We had, you know, um, great potential, but it was like, well, we're in Brownsville and that's, this is all we do. We don't, we don't go into thinking we can excel in any capacity. That's not, that's not what our future holds. And I just found it to be very disturbing. And so I had identified, and it was a group, I feel like it was, maybe 15 young men, it might've been about that many, um, from sixth to eighth grade that had to meet with you. And at that time, Dean Ra, um, she gave you her, her office space, which was a classroom essentially. And you would meet with them and you had journals um, and you would have a circle and you would meet with them. And then it led for you to also provide the opportunity to take the young people to Vassar. Right, because while you were inside, you had developed this relationship and partnership with the folks at Vassar. And you said to me, listen, I could arrange a trip. Would you be willing to have some of your kids go? And I was like, absolutely. And to your point about why people weren't just excited and saying, oh, there's a curriculum, there's a group of individuals who know the life of being incarcerated and want to try to disrupt the system. We want to put them in the schools. The reality is that people will still see you as a criminal and people don't see what this really can mean in terms of transformative work um, and the need to give young people the opportunity to see what it can be for them, right? You, it's choices come with consequences. And unless we have those conversations about what leads to the choices, then we continuously have the same consequences. And so when you came out, I was willing to say again, come to the school. And to be honest, the principal wasn't really like, I didn't have an in-depth conversation 
about what led you into jail. I just simply said, here's, a, here's an individual who has served time, who has literally done exceptional work when I was a teacher um, and is willing to come in and mentor. And because she had nothing in place and she didn't want to take on the initiative, and this would be great to add to her checklist. She said, fine. <laughs> and that's how it went down, right? And sometimes less is more because we actually impacted them. And so, uh, you know, you, we ended up going to Vassar. Um, and that's where Kiese comes into the picture. Um, and the 25 scholars that we took, and they were both... Um, there were, it, was just, it wasn't just for the boys, it was for boys and girls at the time. Um, 24 out of 25 ended up going to college or at least doing something that was related to a trade as well um, and had become successful. The only person who didn't go to college actually went on to become a professional soccer player, football player. Really? Who's this? Um, the young one, the one who's, he was, he was like the one you stayed in contact with. Um, uh, for the time he played football. Latino brother? No, not him. Not him. It was the other one. Young kid, really nice, mild-mannered, had a like the smile. You he was he was he didn't have all of the issues that the other people in the group had. He didn't have as many challenges. His mom was young, um, but he ended up playing professional um soccer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's part of the work, right? Because prior to that, those young people had no clue, did not believe they were going to go to college. And that was when KSA came out with Air Force One, a tweed jacket and some jeans and was like, you know, how many of y'all going to college? And no one raised their hand. He was like, I, okay. And then said, all right, I'm gonna have y'all do an assignment. And then they were like, what? Why we got to do an assignment? And he was like, man. And he handed out the books, the college books and had them write about just the experience of walking across the lawn. That's it, just tell me, describe your walk across the lawn. And they wrote it down, some of them very super basic. And then he was like, I want you to add descriptive language. And the way he was teaching them in that process, and they kept adding descriptive language by the time they were done and they read their responses, he was like, and this is what I teach in college one-on-one classes. And then he said to them, so, raise your hand again, how many of y'all think that you could go through this class? And then they raised their hand. And he said, well, why don't you think you could go to college? And a lot of them said, because of the money. I don't think I'm smart enough. They had a whole myriad of ideas of why they couldn't. And then he talked about Vassar having this, um, what is it, endowment for young people who if their parents made under a certain amount could go for free. And they were like, wait, what? And then he you know, further explained to them that if they could get through that activity they can go to college and then he said again raise your hand and then everyone raised their hand really high so I share that because I want people to know the value asset that you are and you were at that time yeah yeah, yeah. I mean I, I, so yeah I, I appreciate that affirmation and just sort of like putting these stories together between you reaching into the jail and me and then to Kiese, and then Kiese sort of reaching, touching those young people, right? Yeah. So you have me at one point in time who has this very low perception of who he is and who he could be in the world, right? And what's possible. 
years later through obviously you and me working with kids and sort of moving on. Now we meet this professor, a brother in a white institution. I had not seen it before, right? And these, I'm sure these, these young kids definitely didn't see it. These kids uh, didn't see it before. They had low perception of who they can be in life and what they can be in, in their possibilities. I'm just like juxtaposing those, those sort of things, right? In, in terms of um, one, the impact people can have on each other, um, but also in a non-traditional, in an unconventional way. Right. Mm -hmm. Once again, now here you as an educator, the professional reaching into a prison to work with young folks. That's not that's unconventional, probably shunned by many. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Now you have years later, me, this and on parole. Right. Because I was, yep. I was on parole. Right? <laughs> yes. I, had to, I had to get permission to go on that trip because yeah. it was outside of the five boroughs in New York City. So here is this person also now um, me. Um, unconventional person to come into a school to work with young people and definitely not the type of person who you expect to have access to a, a white institution a, a white institution right like how does this it, it just speaks to, i think um like i always use i used to say like possibilities right mm -hmm, and, absolutely. And always there and also up there i forgot to mention earlier as you were talking about brownsville you know i'm from brooklyn from brooklyn grew up in brooklyn we always make jokes about it but like i'm in crown heights you know, right. as a kid, I run the streets of Crown Heights, I run Flatbush, I run Bed-Stuy, all over the place, right? But we, when we as the kids going into Brownsville, like, if you had a reason to go into Brownsville, you better have had a good one and probably, and people can read in between the lines, be prepared to go to Brownsville, right? And it's a negative perception, right, that we have of that particular community, even those of us in Brooklyn, Black folks, mm -hmm. coming back home and now years later, I come into the same community that had, and I see possibility. And this is the middle of Brown, you know, Hull Street is where that school is at, right? Or for like uh, near Rockaway, Rockaway, right? Yeah. Rockaway, right? I used to hang on Rockaway down the block, not too far there, but on Bain, Bainbridge, you give me much detail. The point, <laughs> that, the point though is that possibilities again in the most unconventional places, like in Brownsville, I'm come, I had perceptions of Brownsville, and here I am now working with young folks and seeing the possibilities in that. And again, my work at in that particular school was really transformative because what I was able to do in Fort Greene was much more familiar to me because I went to school in Fort Greene as a youngster when I went to middle school. And to now go from Ronald Emmons Learning Center that was in the part of Fort Greene that was much more residential, wasn't near anywhere near the projects, but to go into the projects and do this work because I knew what I had received as a young person and someone saw possibilities in me, I was able to affirm into these young people that you can do more. You can become more. You don't have to be um, denied a future that could be bright just because of your zip code. And so when I went to Brownsville, I recognized that the same thing was happening. As long as we were in these communities that had been marginalized, and as long as we, again, were in particular schools that may not have had leadership that said every single child in here could be great, these young people would see themselves as, I'm just like literally a survivor. I'm just trying to get through, go through the motions. And if I go to jail, cool, because all my other people went to jail. And if I, if I don't, like, yo, I lived another day. If I made it to 18, I'm good. And that's just like how that to me was insane. Like no child should ever think that way. 
And when I became a principal, it was young people was like, I'd be good if I made it in six months. And they were like 11 or 12. And I'm like, how do we even get here? And with all the work that you ended up doing at the school, the various schools with me, that then provided you with the skills and insight, which became your expertise in doing a lot of social justice work, um, a lot of youth development work that led you on to these other organizations. I do wanna take a step back to the relationship that school has had in your life as it relates to the school to prison pipeline. And I wanna bring up your book because it's really important to this conversation. You know, the, the Bird and Cage, when you sent it to me, I had the opportunity of reading it before it was, you know, officially published. And I started out reading it through the PDF. And then you had an actual copy sent, an advanced copy sent. And I remember like every day you would say to me like, so what's up? You didn't tell me, like, why you didn't tell me? Like, give me feedback. And I was like, I need you to just give me a minute. <laughs> and I couldn't articulate the words of what it meant for me to say, I need you to give me a minute. And it got to a point where you were like, is it not good? Like, I, I gave it to you. Now we going over a week, two weeks, what's happening? And when I finally shared with you, I was like, yo, it was just, it was hard. It was hard to read because I was so angry at having to read your words and how you describe incident after incident after incident that happened in schools. And it made me think as an educator, who by the way, always said, I opened a school to close a prison. And a lot of it had to deal with the work that we did together, wanting to avoid young people from making choices that will ultimately lead them to that consequence. With every page that I read about each incident that took place in a school, I thought about the hundreds or thousands of children who either went into that school in particular or the ones who had gone through our school system with adults who failed to be responsive, who failed to provide a safe environment. And so what I wanna do is, usually you're the one who reads an excerpt out of your book, but I didn't give you enough time. So I actually pulled up um, the first chapter and I wanna read it and I want you, you know, I'm gonna, ask you to just elaborate on that experience and how that changed the trajectory of your life. Um, so out of Marlon's book in chapter one, it's entitled Hiding. And he says, um, so daddy enrolled me into a Jehovah Witness preschool and I loved it. But when that one year of Jehovah Witness kindergarten ended, I was off to kin um, public school the notorious at the time PS 138. It was there that I first learned to keep hurtful experiences secret. It was in the first grade, the first time I was jumped. I can't remember why they did it, probably because they banged my head so hard, but two classmates slammed my head against the porcelain sink in the boys' bathroom of PS 138. We were probably just playing too rough at my expense. 
Dizzy, I struggled to my feet, peed, flushed the toilet, washed my hands, dried my fingers on my clothes, went back to class, sat in my seat, said nothing. I told a silent lie to myself that what had happened to me was too embarrassing to divulge to anyone. I eventually forgot it ever happened, only remembering it during therapy almost three decades later. And so one thirty eight was our neighborhood zone school for where we lived. You know, in most communities, based off of your zip code, they provide they create these districts that redline you into particular areas. And one thirty eight was known as the jungle school. It was a school that was known to be unsafe. And basically nothing good could ever come out of it. When I went to a private independent black school and my parents wanted to transition me into public school, my mother heard about 138 and was like, there's no way she's gonna go there. I ultimately ended up going to PS 93, that's two blocks away. But because my mother had to lie about her address and get a fake lease, I went to that school that changed the trajectory of my life and you ended up in 138. And so as I read that excerpt, I thought about that could have been me. I think about that could have been Dev after you. And I think about so many young people. Although the neighborhood was unsafe, if you can remember or you can share because of your experiences that you've had in schools after that as an adult. What was it about the adults or their lack of insight that created such an unsafe environment that could have been helpful to you? I mean, I think, I think, I, I think to, you know, speaking about that's, you know, 138 in first grade, um, and I end up, you know, fast forward years later, even in the sixth grade and by 138, um, I was thinking about this teacher, my teacher who I had, I'm not gonna say name, but I had her and I was bullied a lot, right? In sixth grade, I mean, a lot, a lot, chased home from school, a lot of things, but or even in this, in, antagonized in the building. And I, and she would know this and she would just not do anything about it, right? I, I, I don't know, I mean, you know, I don't know what's going on in that woman's life, right? But all I know is that she wouldn't, it, it, so there was no, she was no place of safety for me. And this is, and mm -hmm. sometimes we bully in class by, I always, I think I might've wrote about the kid in the book, I might've changed his name, but in class it would happen, right? And she would not really do anything, not anything in that would actually help make me feel like protected, right? Um, and I don't know because of training, I don't know if she, you know, 130 was, there's a lot of these things was happening in 130, so it's probably overwhelming. Um, but I don't know, I never felt safe, right? I always felt going to school was hard for me for, for some years because I always felt like things could happen. And it's not that I didn't never afford, I never took up for myself, but, you know, I was a little baby. I mean, you think about kids, you know, at, uh -huh. at that, you're like, whether it be kindergarten at five or six at, or 10 in the sixth grade, whatever it is, 10, 11, whatever how, how uh, the age I was uh, in the sixth grade, those are babies. You know, I look at those, you said hindsight, those are babies. And I think, you know, oftentimes for many reasons, 
our young kids aren't seen as babies still. Like we want them to develop into adults, um, but they're still at that age in, pre, in, in primary school, little children, very little children, very impressionable, um, very naive. Um, and I think for me, um, I don't, I was a smart kid and I think, you know, I always, but I always excelled in class. I would pass tests. I did, you know, I did well in school. And I think teachers would just sort of assume that, well, he's right because he, you know, he know how to pass his class, pass tests high, you know, he can read well, all those sort of things. So I think it was like, he's fine um, because he's, you know, he's good. He's a good student. And I would always mm -hmm. get a good student report cards or parent teacher night. But I don't think people realize how, how the other things are impacting. I think that's very important that you bring that up because it can create distrustful relationships as mm -hmm. has happened to me as I got in adulthood, but it can create this sort of um, revolving door of being, of being distrustful of people, not taking care of you, not protecting you. Um, and also it can um, make people less willing to be vulnerable about what's going on with them because they feel like nobody's helped me before why well, I'd say it now. And then you learn how to help yourself. Uh, hopefully, or, you know, but, you know, and I, and as an adult who have been in schools in other capacity as a mentor or whatever, um, like I pay attention to those things a lot more now. And I think more educators probably do to some extent, but also I think a lot don't. <laughs> a lot, and it's many, maybe it's over too many kids in school, too many problems. I don't know, not enough resources, but I do know that those things that happen to young people in those ages, particularly in our communities where there's a lot of things happening, unfair injustices that are happening outside the school. And those things what are leads to, like I always say, you see these kids now who, who, yeah. who you know, drill rappers, throwing up gang signs and all this sort of stuff, you know, perpetuating the violence right now in the streets. Like, let's do it. I wish you could do, do, before we put them on the news, let's do a deep dive on their lives. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Before we put them on the news and say she, she, he, they did that thing. Just do a deep dive because when you think about these educators, these teachers, principals, administrators in these buildings, I mean, there's a lot of work for them to do. I know it's a lot of work, but also that's probably where the most important work gets done in terms of the trajectory of these of young people and even like a young person like me who did well in school but still ended up in prison. You know. And then you spoke about how these are babies, but often not seen as babies. And we have to be honest, black and brown boys and girls are not seen as babies. We do respect, oftentimes we see white children and we see them as kids. Let them be kids, let them explore. And we see when it comes to Black boys, it is sit down, don't say anything, don't move. Even though we know that, you know, you all learn through exploration, you become rambunctious, you know, you're creative and it's a sense of control. And so your experience, it might've been fine if it was isolated to 138. And then I get into chapter two and I'm like, now he's going to the other notorious school, which is IS390. Right. And because now I I went to District 13, I'm no longer in the pathway of what District 17 provides. I'm now going to the best schools. Right. So by going to the best schools, 
you're now in, you're stuck in your Crown Heights district of having to now go to IS390. And when I say everybody knew it was notorious, like everybody knew. <laughs> um, and yeah. you start out talking about like the first two months of being in that school. Yeah. It was like, how did you even make it? Right? Because you're then in a situation where you're in a stairwell going down the steps. You decide to go down one pair of steps. Your friends went down the other. And here comes this dude patting down your pockets. And for people who don't know what that means, it's like he was literally getting robbed in school. Um, and then again, the, when you go from the hiding story in the first chapter that you silently tell yourself it didn't happen, where you wanted to do the same thing, here's now one of your friends or someone who witnesses who tells on your behalf. And you can no longer hide, which then leads to you becoming targeted. Because no one actually asked you anything. They just took it upon themselves to traipse you. And I don't want to say traipse because people are not going to know. They walked you throughout the building to help you, for you to identify who did it. Once you live in Brooklyn or any part of New York City, any inner city, you know you cannot snitch. <laughs> and snitching is telling on somebody, even though they're in the wrong, you simply cannot tell that they did anything to you because the consequences of saying that the ramifications is much greater than you getting robbed. Yeah. 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 You know, it's funny as you, you tell that story about 390 and you said, uh, getting robbed in school. And I, this is, I've never actually thought about it in that way. Like, I mean, I know what happened in school, but to be robbed in school, like who used to rob outside of school. It just, for me, just like now, how many years, 30 years later, since that happened, or whatever that, wow, like, like you go to school and you robbed in the building by other students. But anyways, uh, hit, um, I mean, that was handled wrong. I think that the, the dean was a guy, he ended up just, as you say, he's parading me around the building uh, as a sixth grader, as a, yeah, yeah. yeah sixth grade. Um, right, parading me around the building. Um, and first couple of weeks of that school, it goes up to eighth grade. It had a few ninth grade classes. It's right across the street from Albany Projects, you know. Um, and you know, I'm new to this building and the school. It's the beginning of the school year, and this is how kids are knowing me, right? He's the first two weeks. This is how kids around the building know me. Just kid who's running around, looking around with a dean to point out somebody who robbed him. Um, handled it different. Handled it wrong. Um, my mother eventually take me took me out to school, but it didn't help the situation because here's the thing about that um that as you had said like when you live in a certain neighborhood that spreads around and <clears throat> on the block I had lived on or eventually moved on uh St. Mark's a lot of kids from 390 lived on that block so for years after that like me like I just moved to that block actually in seventh grade so I, that happened to me in sixth grade I had just moved to this block St. Mark's in seventh grade so I had thought like that was behind me like what had happened is behind me now sixth grade but now people around that block know what happens. And that got me into problems, almost being bullied on the block. And that eventually led me to shifting my mindset even more so to being a different type of person. But I had to like, my introduction to my new block now was, oh, he's a kid I was robbed. And he's the one that was going around with, the, with Dean, whatever his name was, trying to point out the kids that robbed him. That's, that, that's not the way you want to be introduced to a new neighborhood, right? Um, as, a, as a little kid. Um, so these minor mistakes, these missteps, I don't want to, 
these missteps that these teachers were making or deans, uh, building uh, administrators were making, and they might've been sometimes quick fixes, in particular, this guy, quick fixes, find somebody who did this. Um, but they also weren't taking into consideration the overall wellness and safety of me. Yeah. Right, think about this incident. Um, and, you know. Well, let me just interrupt you. I appreciate you trying to give these adults grace and I'm not gonna be as nice. I'm just, and I, and I, I am not going to be that nice. Be, oh, simply because as a principal and someone who was a teacher, there is still a way in which you handle situations. There's a cultural responsiveness that you have to have in understanding the community you're in, right? He knew what it was from being in that community, from being in that school, how dangerous it could be. Like there's no, some of it sometimes with some adults, it's the power of we're going to find the person who did this to you to put fear in those other young people's heart, but you're in a community where the kids are like, that's not phasing me. Because the minute <laughs> you let him go, we coming for him, right? And you have to be the one to deal with, how do you survive this? Because unfortunately, in our, where we live, violence is the only recourse to settling issues. And essentially, you were introduced to violence inside of the school there was no there were no uh workshops or 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 activities that spoke to young people about how do we interact in the classroom what how are we supposed to treat each other there were no levels of expectations of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves so what happens on the outside we're allowed to bring on the inside but we're not addressing or talking about as a school, what's happening on the outside? What are the needs of the community? Because it's tied to education. If people feel helpless and hopeless, then their behaviors are going to show in such a way where the only recourse on how we deal with each other is through violence, is through yelling. It is not in a place of, we solve our problems by having discussions. We identify what the problems is and work together in collaborative ways of coming up with solutions. That's, that's not, we're not taught that in certain schools. And so that's what bothered me. That's what angered me because to be in Brownsville, to have been in Fort Greene, you can let folks do whatever they want because that's what they're used to. But when you show them something different, they'll actually rise to that occasion. Hence how we were able to get 24 out of 25 kids to go to college. And it was their first time ever going to college or thinking about a trade beyond just like, I'm gonna work at some menial position and not think that I can have a skill or trade to do something greater. So when I saw that, okay, 138, now we go to, to, a, to, your, to a middle school and the same thing is happening at 390, the consistency, you know, the lack of regard. And so immediately I start thinking to myself, if Marlon had never encountered the first incident in, in elementary school where he felt he needed to be silenced and not say anything, and this is how we do, because this is how we grow up. And then 390 happens, if that incident never happened, would that have forced you to change and shift? Would that have led you, and those are a lot of questions that I, we will never know, right? 
but there wouldn't have been as much of a catalyst that would have led you to hang with the people that you were hanging with to make the decisions you would have made. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you can hang with certain people and still be like, yeah, that's not for me. Or you can hang with people and need a sense of belonging and say, yo, I'm going to roll with them and I'm going to become like them because I need to have a sense of protection for myself. And so ultimately, you also had the issue um, and the unfortunate circumstance of um, an incident in which you were violated sexually um, at gunpoint. And as as a Black male and experiencing that and not being able to share that Throughout the book, you talk about how that kind of became the nail in the coffin that forced you to feel like throughout all your life, all these other things are happening and no one has saved you. And then this happens. Now it's, I have to protect myself by all means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know if you had a question. No, it's okay, no, no, no. So I wanted you to go ahead and elaborate from that situation um, because there are young people who are in our schools who have been violated, right? And they're acting out and no one is saying to them, are you okay? And with that, like, what would you have wished someone would have asked you while you were in school? Is there one question you would have wanted them to ask you? You mean like after that incident had happened? After that incident had happened or any incident throughout the time that you were in school, was there anything that an adult could have asked you yourself that may have by changed the, By the time that incident happened to me, I was in ninth grade, the sexual assault. Um, by that time, there's nothing like, I was convinced that there was nothing nobody could do for me at that point. Cause I had been through several things that several things that you, you know, if you read the book, you see us a couple other things and whatever. Right. Um, so by the time I was, 14 there was I was pretty much like this is it like it's I gotta this is there's nobody help me now right um and so nothing nobody I don't think anybody could ask me anything really by the age of 14 that could have made me feel safe enough to believe they could do anything about it um but like going back earlier you know obviously uh, you know in kindergarten I wish the teacher had asked me <laughs> why you look like that mom and you know something or, or took me out to class you know what I mean and at, at, at you know at that age when everybody's like five years old six you could easily just bring us out of the classroom or whatever or you could talk you know there's ways to handle that much easier at that age uh, but you know it was nothing and and, and then kind of like going forward like I said with in sixth grade when all these things were happening not only educators but I think listen I think there are a lot of people that could have asked me different questions, right? I think yeah. my parents could have asked me questions. I think mm-hmm. my older siblings could have asked me questions, right? I think that, you know, here's a couple of things. One is people react to trauma differently. So like my older siblings didn't have the same experience I had, but they had their other sort of, they went to PS 138 too, right? right. And they had their mm-hmm. own stories about 138. And they reacted differently. And they also had like cousins in school at the same time. So they had a support network. So even like in them, they probably could not have seen like, well, he, we dealt with it. We, 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 okay. Like he gonna be all right. He just gotta go through this, right? Um, Cause once again, you, you know, certain community, our communities, you know, when there's a lot of these, so much things happening, people don't always, because some people have survived through it somewhat 
safely and health and in a healthy way they think the next person could mm-hmm. so that's one thing um but like like, like I'm, I'm I always I try to be a person who looks at to try to move from blame into like trying to understand right mm-hmm. and I mentioned my parents and siblings there's also like they're also in a community where they got to deal with a lot and things I'm sure I don't know as a kid didn't know that they were dealing with as adults you know we were broke right we lived six of us in a one-bedroom apartment right so like I imagine there's so many things not saying that they take away from their parenting but also like just a lot happening and he doesn't seem like anything is wrong with him really he's doing good in school right I think that was the thing that got me that probably also like a lot of people overlooked like he he did good in school so he got to be all right um but you know in turn I wish somebody had asked me what I wanted to happen I don't think anybody or what I wanted like, I don't think anybody ever asked me what I wanted I think like even when my mother took me out of the school um IS390 I, I didn't at, at that age I was still like no nah, don't take me out like I was still you know I had this thing to deal with but I was like I need to like at that time I need to like deal with this I need to face and, and when I meant deal with that I mean I need to go back and fight and jump somebody but I meant or get somebody jumped or anything like that but I meant like I, I, at that time I was like I can't run away I don't want to run away from it that's how I felt right and she made a motherly decision said no I'm taking you out of here, but no one ever asked. That dean who walked me around the school when the robbery happened, he never asked me anything. He just said, I'm going to find it. I was like, oh, okay, right? Um, when the teacher, when I was being bullied by in school in sixth grade as well, when I mentioned the teacher earlier, she never asked me how I felt. Like, do you feel scared? Like, nobody ever asked me, do you feel scared? Like, <laughs> yes, I felt scared, right? But I think she thinks, well, they're just little kids. They'll be I. They are what boys being boys. So you just got to toughen up a little bit. And be clear, that might work for some people. I'm, you know, it didn't work for me. I don't think people saw me. I think there's this clumping together of all experience of boys, particularly like all boys experience things the same way and supposed to deal with it. And I don't think that nobody saw the individuality in me. Um, and once again, I say that you know I think people didn't care enough. And I also think people were also, um, they were able to excuse what they might have saw as an issue by my grades. Like he's doing good, so he I. And so I appreciate you um, showing the full picture of that um, because there are a lot of listeners who either serve in the capacity of educators or have family, you know, themselves, their parents. And so when I speak about the school to prison pipeline, yes, directly schools and actions that happen in schools can directly impact the trajectory of a child going into prison. But there also is a community and that community is encompassed of the people who live in your direct community and your immediate family. And the reason why I wanted to bring Marlon on to have this conversation is because one, his story is incredible. And we often don't give those who have been incarcerated the opportunity to tell their stories and what led to the situation, um, but also learn how we can improve our communication with young people, change policies, um, and have a better impact. Um, And when I do think about your parents and your siblings, you know, I didn't really go into detail, but it's important that educators understand 
or individuals in general who will see you without knowing your true story, who will judge you and say, well, he must have did something wrong. He must have been that type of kid. And you weren't. You came from a loving home. You came from a two-parent household. You had siblings. Like, everyone worked. There was no deviating from the American dream script, really, right? Outside of living in poverty and having what that life was in an urban community. But essentially, there was love in this household. You came from a background where your father was a Jehovah Witness. So there was strict strict laws in terms of your relationship with God and how you interact um, that you follow, right? You follow those things, but that also contributed to these issues of being bullied because you live in a community where kids, when we were growing up, we knew the person, the Jehovah Witness was the ones knocking on our doors and we didn't open up the door and then it becomes a moment to bully and ridicule you for that, right? Um, and that's you following your religion and your belief in God and then how how your belief in God and, and trusting him, but then things are happening that's harming you. And so you lose trust in him, like it goes deeper. And so the value of bringing you on to have this conversation is because your book needs to be read by everyone. It needs to be read by, especially people who are dealing with our youth, um, and people who are actually working in systems that deal with those who have been incarcerated and are returning back into society. Because we often judge individuals by the time that they serve without understanding what were the factors that led to this? Yeah, I mean, that's why I, you know, you spoke about how to let me to do and work in the social justice space. I, you know, for me, as a, uh, another you know, natural progression, something in the words from a friend of ours, like, I always needed to look deeper into why these things happened to me. For me, as I got older, particularly while I was away, like, why, 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 like, I had to make sense of the things that I had experienced and staying in a place of just, like, blaming wasn't like healing enough well it wasn't giving me the healing I needed and, and and so I you know started looking deeper and I think that allowed me that's why I, you know I always inject parts of like in, you know community you know injustices in, in communities and inequities and all those sort of things because I had to like why did those kids harm me like why did those little boys they were like in the book I think I refer I don't ever refer to any of these boys who did things to me as anything but other than human I say these other hurting black boys like they were hurting too like they were Little kids too. They were babies too. We were babies. They were all the same age, or maybe two, three years older than me, whatever. They were little kids, impressionable children too. And it's always it's become important for me to be able to look deeper into like why that happened to me. But what happened? Why? Even though I can't go back and ask these kids why these things happen, why do they do whatever? We can presume that we we all live in the same neighborhood. And we all walked out, and we all saw things happen in our neighborhood, right? I, you know, in the book, I give context that like. It was before I was born, but on the same block of PS138, cops killed an innocent black man, strangled him to death on the street, mm -hmm. Arthur Miller, right? And he was a community activist and all the things, right? And even though I didn't know that growing up, there is a DNA, there's embedded into our communities, like, like these things happen to us. It's a harmful place. The people who are here protect us ain't gonna protect us. And we already deal with other people who are harming us and that get passed down. Right. And that happened just two years before I was born, that incident. So 
I mean, anything about the school to prison pipeline or at least breaking that pipeline, so many of the things that we that happened to us in school also happened to us in our communities, in the neighborhood. Like I was robbing, jumping our neighborhood, right? Like when I was sexually assaulted, it didn't happen in school, right? Like when we talk about young folks, um, and it's the reason why I'm so passionate. I've always been working with young folks. I hope, you know, young folks, as many young people as possible get to read this, get to read this and educate us and who work with young people because like I always say about this book, you have to pay more than usual attention to the young kids that you're with. The ones who are doing the bad stuff and the ones who are doing the good stuff and especially the ones who you don't know what they're doing, right? Um, because they are processing things differently. And just because, you know, well, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I, you know, people bully me, but I got through it. Like, that was you. It may not be the next person, you know, I, you know, I, 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 this is this example of when I, you know, I was, went spoke, spoke with some kids in Jersey a couple of years ago, middle school in Jersey and little, and, you know, this, this experience always stands out with me because, you know, I'm there to speak with these young folks in the school and, in the neighborhood is a tough neighborhood in Brown, uh, excuse me, in Jersey, in, in, in uh, I believe it's Newark. Mm -hmm. uh, driving around the neighborhood before I parked and got into school, I was like, oh, wow. They still got like, the. it is it, a tough looking neighborhood and here's this school planter right in the middle of all this stuff that was happening around. You could paint, you could fill in the blanks about what I was seeing around the neighborhood. And I go into the school, wonderful building, wonderful looking school building. Um, and as the kids who I'm going to work with that day come into the room, seventh graders, first is the boys, I do a group with the boys, and I do a group with the girls next. And as the girls are entering, this is one girl, seventh grader, you know, 11 years old, 12 years old, what have you. And she's the most rambunctious walking into the room, you know, you know, most like boisterous and whatnot. And as we sit down and we start talking, I do this exercise, you know, asking people about, you know, the experiences and life even kids like raise your hand if you experience this raise your hand if you experience this or the other and one of the questions i had asked the group was how many people here have like a family member in prison and mm -hmm. sadly and i've done this with so many different groups of kids over the years you know most of them raise their hand and then this once rambunctious girl now asked like quietly she like kind of raises her hand like after we were debriefing the exercise and she kind of raises her hand like slowly and that stood out to me because she was like before like you know all active and animated and she said well what if like i never forget it. she said in the in the in the quietest tone in the in the lowest tone and she's like well what if your your, your father keeps going to jail because he doesn't like you or he doesn't want to be around you mm. and i was like Mm. And, I, and I knew, like, we can all assume that her father was not going to jail because he wanted to get away from her, right? That's right. right? We can right. all safely assume that wasn't a reason. We don't know the reason. I don't know the reason, but that was what she perceived, right? And that broke my heart, right? And I just want to use that example to just to explain, like, to, 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 to nail down the point about our young people are experiencing things differently. We have, and we got to try to be pay more attention to how that person is experiencing it. Cause I, I preface it by saying this girl was the most rambunctious. She was boisterous. She wasn't trying to hear me. And in fact, I remember when we, they first sat down in the room, they first sat down in the room, the teacher brought them in and she's like, what he here for? 
<laughs> and I was like, okay. I was like, and you know me, I love, I, I see you, you know, I, I know how to make a joke of it. Cause I understand she doesn't know me. I, and I feel like she was coming from some, something else was there. Right. right? It came out, but like, she could easily be the kid that thrown away. Right. Mm -hmm. Acting up. She's acting up and it's like, she got no reason to be acting up. Well, I got other kids got kids, they fathers in jail. Why she, why she had to be the one, you know? And, you know, I, I, you know, I have, I've had to make sense of my experiences, um, Nadia. I've had a lot of amazingly um, traumatic things happen growing up, right? And even into my twenties and I've had to make sense of it. And one of the things I've come up with is that, this testimony is to be able to like tell the story of what could possibly be happening to the young kids, to the kids around us. You know, know? what's interesting is, and I know we could go off and on forever because that's what we do. And there's going to be another, we'll have another conversation at another time, but you, um, would moderate a lot of my iMatter events and iMatter was focused on our young men, giving them a platform to talk about issues in the community and speaking with um, men who are leaders in different industries, giving them insight and sharing their own personal journeys, right? And so it was always beautiful to bring all of these young people together. We were at Mega Everest College. And I don't know if you remember, but you were closing out the the panel and you told the young men, it's not normal to live with violence. It's not normal to have to um, be raised with guns. It's not normal for people to create harm against another person. And some young man raised his hand and you was like, all right, young brother, you got a question. And someone passes him the mic and he says, I hear what you're saying. You're telling us what isn't normal, but what happens if everything you say that isn't normal, it is our normal. And everybody in the room was like, like it, it was one of those, oh. And all of the men kind of like shifted their seats because yeah, we're trying to reframe and help these young people understand this isn't normal for you but if all i know as a child is that this has been normalized if all i know as a child that when i go into buildings that's supposed to be about learning and nurturing my mind and if something happens to me i should say something but actually creates harm that's normalized if it's normalized that in my household, my family doesn't ask me questions about, are you okay? Because as long as you're still breathing and you made it home, you're okay. Like if that's normalized, how can you then say to me, that's not normal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I remember that experience um, at, at, the, at, uh, at, the, at, the, uh, at the session. My brother's keeper, I matter. One of the- I matter. I matter. Um, and- Here's the thing about that comment, or even like, one of the things I've learned, you know, from working with young people, whether it be through the letter writing correspondence or in class workshops, whatever it is, um, 
you know, you, you, you can feel accomplished. I think it's important anytime you do this as humans or anything you do, teacher, whatever it is, you, you, what, what propels you to keep doing it is like at some point you feel accomplished, you reach that person, whatever, right? Um, for me, what makes me feel accomplished in any time I work with young folks or a session, a group or whatever, is when I get them to speak as candid and truthfully as they can. Cause that, that means we made we made we made something we made some headway. You're, you know, one is you're live, you're listening. You know, kids could be in a room thinking about all type of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, one, you so you're connecting with them, and that's the biggest thing. You got to connect with them. So when that kid said that thing, um, it's obviously not the I get it. Like <laughs> I completely understand where he's coming from, right? Um, but the the. the But those type of conversations can serve as interruptions, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. It can, can serve as interruptions that to say that like, these things are normal and they say, well, this is normal to me. I'm, so we're not in conflict. I'm not, right. I'm not disagreeing with the kid. I'm saying like, I'm, I'm trying to inter- inject an interruption here that, you know, we like to say and even in the, in, the, in the social justice field or what have you, like another world is possible. Like we have to sort of, while young folks, um, incite them and inspire them to see that other things are possible, yeah. right? Because part of what happens in our neighborhoods, just like once again, just kind of like full circle in prisons, in certain neighborhoods, we believe this is all it is. This is all I can be. This is all people like me can be, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's important for us to, to expose that, whether you can physically take people out of places, which is a great thing to do, college trips or whatever it is, but also um, take their minds to different places. You know, when KSA did that college class for those kids, I remember distinctly the English teacher, right? And I remember his act, one of his, 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 the way that he got these junior high school kids to do a college level lesson was like, when you were walking around this campus, it was a writing problem. When you were walking around this process, this campus before you came to my class, what did you see? Yep, that's it. You hear? What did you smell? Mm-hmm. And they asked, and he said, just write that stuff down. Whatever you saw, smell, heard, whatever, just write that down. And he was encouraging them to be like creative writers, mm-hmm. right? Like this is basic to one and one-on-one, give us detail. He was telling them, he was inspiring them, inciting them to see that like, well, one, you could be a writer, you could be a college student, like this is all it takes. Yep. This is what it takes here, right? This is pretty much what it, this is what I teach my 18, 19 year old students. Anyways, full circle back to that kid and Mega at the school, at the uh, at the I Matter session. Um, when we think about violence in our neighborhoods, like I've grown up in violence, and, you know, we in the same neighborhood, live from the same neighborhood. I still live in Brown, in, in, in Bed-Stuy. So it's, you know, I still see these things still. So I understand why as a young person, you feel that's all there is. Mm-hmm. And I even feel why you know that's all there is at the moment. But the other part of it is that we have to show them that something is possible because we want them to be able to, to, at some point in life, whether it be at that moment in that conversation or at some point later in life, you want to, you want to be able to embed in them that other things are possible. Absolutely. Ultimately, they're gonna live their own life. They're gonna either be great. They're not gonna be great. They might end up in prison. They might, you know, all the things can happen. Like we, these are realities. And this kid was talking to that reality, but you also got to be able to let them see how other things are possible, right? And so, like for me, when I went to jail, um, once again, this you know, when I think about the program that we started, 
Like I was in prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came up prison where somebody had just killed somebody for a couple of cents. I literally just left the jail for that, right? No, I, I mean, I didn't leave the jail for it. I wasn't, it, it had happened in the prison. That's the point I'm saying. And like, that was normal. Like, it didn't feel like, oh my God, like somebody stabbed somebody. Like, it was like, yeah, like, you know, just don't be the one to get stabbed, right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But like that interruption of you saying, hey, this is thing that's possible changed my life. It changed many kids' lives, obviously. You know, you're talking about how many kids went to college. You know what I mean? It changed some, it changed Kiese's life yeah. in terms of, you know, things that he writes about and how he sees things. And, you know, so like, I mean, that interruption. And I think it's, edu- you know, I'm educating a different way. You know, I don't got to be <laughs> educator. You know what I mean? I never get, you know, work in a school in any official capacity, really. But like, I mean, I've taught, but like, our jobs to inspire all those things, but it's also to create, particularly when you work in, in, in communities where there's so many social ills and dynamics and injustices and inequities that are around them, it's important for educators to be able to listen and serve as interrupters. Like you have to interrupt some of the things that's happening in your buildings institutionally, if you can or whatever, but also to serve as an interrupter of what is common common expectations of the people, of the young people in your building. You know what I mean? Um, because even in the depths and the darkness and the dungeons of a, of a prison, little jewels I would drop on, on me propelled me when, mm. I was, when I was ready. And so just imagine what would happen if we did that in our communities, in our schools, before they have to get to that place. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to thank you, Marlon, because um, by writing your book, um, you are liberating so many young people and you are educating so many um, adults and you're giving voice. And I always say to you, like, even when you were incarcerated, like, it's unfair that you have to be there, but God had a bigger purpose for you and a bigger plan. And unless you went through this, you wouldn't have the testimony that you have today. And so I encourage everyone to purchase this book um, for a young person, for yourself. I'm going to tell you that it's, it's, it's an easy read, you can get through it, but when you read it, you have to take time to process. <laughs> you, need to, you need to be okay and sit with all the emotions that can come with it um, because it really exposes, exposes those social ills. And then you have to ask yourself as a human being, what can I do to make a difference? And also reflecting what ways have I may have contributed to harm? Mm-hmm but mm-hmm. want to help avoid it from happening again in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the part of healing. And that's the part of engaging in ac- actions of justice, social justice. Um, so tell folks where they can find um, ways of c- communicating with you, more of the work that you're doing and your book. Yeah, thank you. For, thank you for this conversation as always, um, Nadia. Um, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Um, but yeah, please, you know, you mentioned the bird. First of all, I gotta say, you also always say 
you always put uh, the bird on cage. I, I like it. Like you give him, you know, you're adding that, but it's <laughs> you always say, the bird on cage. I appreciate that because uh, I am the bird on cage. And we want many people to be, you know, <laughs> the book is called Bird on Cage and Abolitionist Freedom. So. Because I always start <laughs> with the bird because it's a whole Listen. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, all good. Like it's I all put good. a whole new spin to the title. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Um, but you know, if you can, you know, book Bird on Cage and Abolitionist Freedom Song, you can buy it anywhere pretty much. The audio book, I encourage people also, you know, if you don't want to be want to read it, you can listen to the audio book. I am the person who's reading the audio book, so you get to hear me. And also there's parts where I have my little washed down fake Trinanian accent that I use <laughs> on it to get to hear that too. Um, but I encourage people to get the book. Um, and you can follow, you know, reach out to me on, you know, socials, um, underscore uh, Marlon Peterson. I encourage people to reach out to me that way. Um, email is um, Marlon at bpresidential.com. I'm, I'm, you know, it'll be in the show notes, I guess, or what have you. Yes. Um, but yeah, reach out. Um, but more, and, and as you reach out, but also I like to say, like, pay more than the usual attention to the young people around you. Um, cause that's pretty much this book is a, that's one of the major themes of this book. Like really just pays real, real attention because so many things, I would say there's so many things that young folks got to deal with. I mean, even now, right. We think about COVID I mean, you know, there's always these, you know, every news blotter now, particularly here in New York city, you know, the crime is up and violence is up da, 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 and all these things. And it is true in terms of like, you know, we are seeing, being exposed to more incidences of violence um, in our neighborhoods. That happens seasonally, but I also understand people are feeling that right now. So I get it. Absolutely. But I also get that grown folks like you and I and many other people around this world, but in our neighborhoods have been dealing with a pandemic that we have not seen in modern history where people have been dying and not only that we're coming out of a, a huge moment not coming out but like forget like the streets were packed with pro with us in the streets for, for for over these things with police being you know killing our folks and killing young people yeah right we have we going to therapy we doing all the things as an adults you know we got these self-help groups and programs we listen to all the audio book we go into meditation we it's it is overwhelming for us we are being having anxiety attacks some of us sadly we hear increasing are committing suicide like adults yeah. with resources are struggling to deal with this yeah what do we think about 12 year olds 15 year olds 19 year olds do we think that somehow they are not dealing, struggling too. And they have, they don't have the wisdom. They don't have the, they honestly don't have wisdom. They don't have the wisdom of years that we have. They don't have the lived experience that we have. They don't have all the money to be doing all these things. They're not listening to the audio books and listen to the meditation sessions and all that sort of stuff. They're young people trying to find themselves with all the stuff that young people got to deal with any given day. And they got all these things happening around them. They got aunts and aunties dying, and uncles dying from COVID and people working extra hours because they can't be home. They, they, they're, they're not really in school. They're kind of like in school with remote learning. Like they're dealing with this. And they have to deal with social media and the pressures of trying to keep and up. And they got to deal with social media <laughs> and the pressures of it all. And we don't do well with it. We had a president who was inciting global conflicts through that. Yep. So what do you, I just, you know, 
some people always say to me, I'm, I'm a cut off here, but like, you know, you, you know, you're always nice about these people who do these kids who do violence and all that. And it's like, it's not about being nice to people who do violence and kids who harm people. That's not what my mission is. My mission is to go deeper than the thing that they did because no young person is born the way, is born with a gun waiting to hurt somebody, throwing up gang signs. Nobody's born like that. You know what I mean? Things are, society, community is happening and bad parents are happening, bad teachers are happening them, failed education system happening, policing are doing these things. Like, you know, all these things are happening and we expect these kids in these communities to all somehow be stellar. That's not fair because we gang stellar. And that's truth. And until we look at ourselves, we can't put anything on the children. Um, and that's the work. So that's the purpose of this podcast, to have these conversations that lead people into detention <laughs> that no one wants to have conversations about, but they need to be had. And also revealing like those who end up in detention, there's a root cause for it, right? Mm -hmm. trouble there's there's a root cause and so until we actually figure out what's leading this person to have to react and behave quote unquote in this way um we won't learn and so i created this platform for that because i didn't see those conversations happening so i i thank you for that but before you go i do have two questions that i want to ask you mm -hmm. um so the first one is with all that you have accomplished, you still have so much life left. Who do you see yourself becoming? I mean, the best version of myself, the biggest, the best, the greatest version of my possibilities, you know? And then, you know, possibilities is like an ellipsis. Like you don't, it's a dot, dot, dot. You don't know what happens. I don't wanna, I don't know what all my possibilities are. I know that I that there's, I know about, I've experienced extraordinary things. And through those things, I wanna, I feel like the possible, there's extraordinary things for me to contribute and to continue to contribute um, and, and people to support and amplify and uplift. So we'll see where it goes. I mean, I'm trying to get an Oscar. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Trying to get an Oscar, you know what I'm saying? So let's see where that goes and let's see what goes after that even, you know? You know, I'm all ready for the red carpet. And so I'm going to transition to the second question, which is, you know, as someone who's a disruptor and, and many times a rebel um, engaged in really good trouble, it also can affect you mentally, physically, emotionally. Um, and so what are ways in which you take good care of yourself and you would advise others to do? Hmm. Ah, you know, um, I listen to a lot of music. You know, you mentioned in the beginning, I'm a soca lover. And that, you know, soca music, you know, it, it, you know, invigorates you, it gives you energy. It helped pull me out of COVID. Just being, and I'm being very honest about that. You have followed my Instagrams uh, back then. Um, so listen to music, I dance in my apartment. You know, when I get the chance to go someplace, I turn up to. Um, but also I have a, you know, there's therapy that I actually like actual therapy that I, uh, you know, that I have for four years now, I think. Um, and um, I have little nieces and nephews, a little niece and two nephews. 
10, 11, 7, and 2, um, who, you know, and I, I can go, they're always by my parents' house on, on weekends, so that's a good place for me to sort of, like, um, be even more free. Oh, and the last thing I'll say is definitely being by, uh, if I get to travel. I mean, if I get to travel, that helps out a lot. I like experiencing new, for me, being in different environments, particularly in places that I don't know, or, you know, is it, it allows me to experience myself in a different way. Um, so those are some of the things. I mean, you know, and it, you know, I'm, I'm looking for writing. <laughs> writing helps that out too. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so those are different things that help me, you know, help me uh, kind of deal with all the things. Well, I thank you for serving <laughs> detention with me. And I invite folks to check out Marlon's website, check out the sh um, show notes, um, and to check me out with my next episode. So until next time, folks, take gentle care of yourselves, be well, and be good to one another. Peace. <laughs>